Hello and welcome to the third episode of Dice and Dachshunds, a podcast where we discuss board games and card games, and uh, we do so with very cute dogs in attendance. I'm Matthew. And I'm Diana. And Buddy and Mikey are here as well. So in our first episode, we talked about two games that we were hoping to be able to play soon and why we were excited about them. Those games were Fury of Dracula, published by Fantasy Flight Games, and Panthelos, published by Iron Games. We finally got around to playing both of them, so we thought we'd do another follow-up episode and talk about what our uh, impressions were after having done so. So, as we mentioned before, Fury of Dracula is a one-against-many game for up to five players. One player plays Dracula, who is moving. He has a hidden movement mechanic, and the hunters are trying to track him down and kill him. And they each have a special ability, and there are different ways to move. So regardless of how many of those five players are playing, you can play with as few as two, then one player is playing Dracula, and the other player is playing all of the hunters. If you've got three, then you split the hunters, etc. Um, so if you're playing with five, everyone has their own character. If you're playing with two, one player is playing one character, and the other is playing four. Being a one-against-many game, it's a cooperative game of a sort, and as such, it's really hard. It's meant to be hard, but only one brain being pitted against one brain who has an advantage is maybe not ideal. Since we only played it with two players, I think maybe we didn't quite get the full effect, and I'd be interested to play it with more. So we've only played it once at this point, and as you could probably tell, Diana was playing the Hunters, and she was mercilessly chasing poor Dracula, a misunderstood Transylvanian gentleman with a flair for dressing and a love of carriages and a deep hatred of water around Europe with guns and garlic and steaks and all sorts of other... And running into baby vampires. Well, you know, guy has needs. <laughs> so this is the first game in the hidden movement subgenre I've played. And I thought the way the hidden movement itself was set up was very clever. I've seen others out there where the hiding player gets a pad of paper where they're marking down their progress across the map. But in Fury of Dracula, there are six card spots that represent what's called the trail. And the Dracula player has a deck of cards, and there's one card for every location in the game. And each turn, he puts down a card to represent where he currently is and slides the cards for where he was back along the board. This means that if the hunters stumble into a place where he's been in the last six turns, he has to reveal the card so they know that he's been where they are, and they know roughly where in his movement that card is. They also know that because he has to mark his path with physical cards, of which he only has one for each location, that he can't double back to the exact same spot within six turns. The Dracula doesn't have to just leave the card in his path. He can actually put another card, an encounter, behind that card. These can sometimes be nascent vampires that he is attempting to raise, and if they reach the end of the six-card track, they have matured, and that's one of the ways that the Dracula player 
earns the influence that he needs or she needs in order to win the game. Other times they can be false trails, hordes of bats, spies, bodyguards, assassins. Fog. Fog. Fog is good. So he can leave little presents to slow down or distract the hunters as well, some of which will have an effect if they reach the end of the track. Others will just simply cease to do anything. So there are things as the Dracula player you're hoping that the hunters will actually step on. When one of the baby vampires matures, it not only gives you some points, but it clears off some of the oldest portions of the six-card trail which can make it harder for the hunters to find Dracula if they haven't already discovered parts of that trail. But it also clears off any landmines or other vampires that Dracula has placed on the trail in those slots. So as a first-time Dracula player, I kept clearing out things that I actually wanted to keep on the track. So Dracula can move, as Matthew described, he has to move by road. There are also railroad tracks on the board, and only the hunters can move by rail. But they need tickets that they pick up with actions and then spend for for another action. They can double back on themselves so they don't have as many restrictions as he does on his movement. In practice, this is maybe a little bit less of an advantage than it seems like. We, or I, my collective hunters, that we picked up his trail pretty quickly in the game. And then we were just chasing him and chasing him and chasing him. And we couldn't ever seem to catch up. And finally, he just sort of waited us out. I'm sure there are different strategies, but, you know, it was our first game. So we uh, just kind of had to experiment. To be clear, when she's saying that she picked up Dracula's trail, she means that she got to one of the cities that he'd been to recently. Dracula actually never appeared on the board over the course of our game because while she knew generally where he was, I was able to keep him separate from her group by maximizing the number of possible places he could have gone in any given situation, using some of his misdirection cards to make her think that she was stumbling into a place I didn't want her to when actually it was a place that didn't matter to me, but I was going to push her away from it to delay her and make her then go investigate a place that was of no importance. I don't know. I felt like she could have caught me if she was able to find me, but again, she knew generally what part of the map I was on, but she didn't know specifically. I think the game was working as intended. So, like I said, hard, meant to be hard. The art of the board is really pretty, and I really liked the art on the cards as well. The flavor text has some nice theme. It's all sort of a nice, coherent package. And the theme really is baked into the mechanisms of the game as well, because, as we all know, vampires don't like water. Uh, Whenever Dracula goes to cross the ocean, He has to put down ocean cards on the track that show the hunters that he's traveling by boat. And so the hunters know how long he's traveled by boat, so that again helps them narrow down where he is. And he takes damage each turn he's on the water. Mina Harker, of course, has been bit before the game starts, so she's weaker than the other characters in some ways. But she's also a lot more powerful than the other characters because she has this psychic link with Dracula, if she moves to a city where another hunter currently is, 
she can use her ability to force the Dracula player to tell her whether he's in the same country, the same region of the board that she is. I agree with Diana that I think this game is really going to shine when you bring more Hunter players into it, both because you have a, a bunch of different opinions and thoughts going on that allows them to better coordinate things and come up with new ideas, but because the Dracula player gets to hear all of their table talk unless they go to the same city on the map and spend an action to trade resources and actually be able to talk between those two hunters in private. So the other game that we had talked about before and finally got around to playing is Panthalos. It's a worker placement game set in ancient Corinth where you go around taking turns, placing workers, and taking actions. And most of the things that you're doing are economic. You're getting resources and selling them and upgrading them and getting money or points. And then, at not quite at the very end of each round, a titan shows up from the underworld and tries to smash the city. And you can choose to defend against him or not. And if you do successfully defend against him, you get some nice points, and if you don't, you have to place one of your tokens in the offering. And uh, if too many of those build up, the game ends early and you all lose points for those. But if you don't, then, the, then those don't matter. At the very end of the round, the last section that you go through, you can challenge someone to a duel. And that means that you look around and see who you think is weak, and there's some restrictions on who you can challenge and when. Uh, and if you think you can take them, then you can pounce on them after everybody's just fought or decided not to fight the Titan and get a whole bunch of points. So there's kind of a sneaky mechanic in there. Well, Panthalos may look at first a bit like a European economic worker placement game with a bit of a defend or take a penalty mechanic, sort of like you'd see in Champions of Midgard or Kingsburg, there's actually a lot more to it than that. You're not only managing the military might that you need in order to defend against the titan that's attacking the city, but there are times when you may decide to just let him hit you. Well, those other two games I mentioned, you take an immediate hit to your resources or your endgame scoring or buildings that you've built. In Panthalos, there are two ways for the game to end. Either the game can end at the end of a certain number of rounds, or it can end if the city is destroyed because people haven't been defending against the Titans. If the city is not destroyed, there's no penalty for letting the Titans ravage the city a little bit other than you lose one of your resource discs, which, as it turns out, if you manage it carefully, isn't that big of a deal. One of the other mechanics is that once you've used your workers in a round, then they have to go to the baths for, for a full round. And your workers are dice, which you can promote by increasing the number of pips that are showing on them. They start at level 2, you can be forced to demote them in a duel, and so you're managing your worker dice and when you can use them and what rank they are, because sometimes you need them to be of a certain rank to do something with them. Then you have uh, leaders, which act like workers in most ways, but not quite all. There's a way that you can promote a worker to a leader, 
and then you have your resource discs that you're also managing and it's it's just amazingly complex without really looking complex or having you know a bunch of different obvious moving parts which is exciting but it also makes it feel like one game we've just barely scratched the surface and I continue to be fascinated by the ability to rush the end of the game, not just because you force the end early, which you see in a lot of games, but by letting Titans destroy the city, you're removing a lot of the end game scoring. A lot of Euro games have things that you're managing on your personal tableau that don't actually move up onto the scoreboard until the game has ended, and Panthelos is one of those, but... If you let the Titans destroy the city, everybody takes some minus points from the discs that are in the offering that they sacrificed as the Titans destroyed the city, but all of the tiles that they have in front of them don't count. So it's just the points that are on the board at the moment the game is ended, minus anything you had to pay the Titans, is the final score. So there's a, a real alternate strategy there. It's almost as if... You, as the player, have an ability, if you really work at it, and if the other players let you, to change the game from one style of game to another. There's really a lot to the game, and we're just scratching the surface ourselves, so it's a little hard to tell you about everything in detail because we're still learning how the pieces come together. But it's really neat. Iron Games, the publisher, is actually owned and operated by the designer... And he said in his catalog that Panthelos is a limited release game, limited to a thousand copies, which wouldn't seem like a lot. But as I said, this is kind of a niche publisher, so you can probably still get your hands on it, either by looking at some of the big online game stores or by going and ordering direct from him in Germany. He's a really nice guy. He actually, as we mentioned on our first podcast, he sent us some replacement pieces when it turned out that somehow our copy had showed up without the dice and several of the other wooden pieces. And it's really neat. You should check it out. You know, I still say you would have caught Dracula a lot faster if you'd only listened to Mikey. He clearly knew where I was. (coughs) Shh, quiet, Mikey. Daddy's trying to sow seeds of destruction across Europe. You're adorable. Yes, you're adorable, too. One of the things that these games have in common, with many other games we have, of course, is that Matthew won them. We'll see if I can change that. I don't win all the time. Just most of the time. One of the next games that I'm excited about playing and hopefully uh, reversing Matthew's winning streak is Steampunk Rally by Roxley Games. It's a tile-laying, dice-placement, engine-building sort of a game. I haven't played it yet, so I don't know all the details, but it's got cool art and a neat theme, and it just sounds really fun, so I'm looking forward to it. I have played sort of a quick learning game of Steampunk Rally, and it is a lot of fun. It's really intentionally goofy. The theme is that Nikola Tesla has invited and challenged all the great inventors of the industrial era to come to the Himalayas and race him with various contraptions of their own design that they continue to design and build throughout the race as pieces get blown off or become obsolete. It's pretty nifty. You've got 
Tesla versus Edison versus Marie Curie versus George Washington Carver. Yes, the development of peanut butter is racing across the Himalayas. Anyway, you're drafting components for your machines and putting them together with other components while rolling dice and managing them to power your various motion equipment like electrically powered spider legs or rocket boosters or steam-driven penny-farthing bicycles. Matthew has played this game, clearly. (laughs) It's pretty wild and woolly. I'm looking forward to playing more of it and really seeing how the game develops past the basic learning phase. And the game I'm most interested in checking out next is Exodus Proxima Centauri, which is put out by NSKN Games. It's a what's called in the video gaming community a 4X game. Explore, expand, something about research that starts with an EX and exterminate. So you're basically spreading out across the universe with an alien race, trying to subjugate it and bumping up against other alien races as you each struggle for resources and area. It's really on my list, and I have it because I really want to play this game called Twilight Imperium 3, which comes in the box the size of a small coffin and takes six to eight hours to play, and I don't know that I'm ever going to actually do it. And Exodus Proxima Centauri is supposed to be a an abbreviated version of that game in a lot of ways. So hopefully I can scratch that itch without locking myself in the basement for eight hours. You know the door to our basement doesn't actually lock, right? Anyway, yeah, it's been awesome talking about these games, and I think us and our puppies need to go off to bed. So, uh, talk to you later. Talk to you later. Bye. Questions, edits, concerns, ideas for new episodes, whatever... Give us an email at diceanddoxins at gmail.com, and we'll read it for sure, because we've never gotten an email there before, and we're lonely.